All right. So, in 2015, there was a worldwide phenomenon. I think you guys are going to remember this. It broke out on social media. Within one week, there were 10 million tweets about this, this phenomenon. Um, it, it spawned this specific study into neuroscience. And, um, and the scientists are still studying this. And they, they have theories and they have hypotheses. Um, but for those of us that are on the ground experiencing this phenomenon, that, you know, the scientific lingo of explaining our experiences just kind of, at least to me, it, it, it doesn't hit me. It, doesn't, it falls on deaf ears because of what I'm experiencing is real life. I'm seeing something. And this experience, and you guys are going to see, it, it, it's a, we all experience it differently. And there are two very clear differing positions. And you are either in this side or you are in this side. Kins and I are on different sides on this experience. And so, uh, and so is Leela and I. We're on different sides of this experience. So you've likely heard of this phenomenon, but let me just go ahead and show you what I'm talking about. Chad, if you want to go ahead and share. So you guys wouldn't believe it when I tell you that Kinza and Leela think this dress is black and blue. Ah, I see as clear as day, as clear as I'm standing here, this dress, this dress is white and gold. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> All right. Who sees black and blue? All right. Okay. Who sees white and gold? Okay. All right. See? Evenly split. So that's fun. Uh, but what in the world does this have to do with Mark 3? So, you know how the book of Mark is laid out. We're in Act 1. There's two acts. We're in Act 1. And we're answering the question, who is Jesus? So, the, the first seven chapters of Mark talks about who Jesus is. And Mark shares right from the get-go, in the first verse, Jesus is the Son of God. But after that, he kind of holds his commentary back. And what he's doing is he's just writing down what Jesus says and what Jesus does and how people respond to it. He's grouping these stories, not in a chronological order, but in a thematic order, all right, to show a, a theme in each of these segments. And he weaves these together to show how controversial Jesus was. You know, Jesus was saying that he's bringing in the new kingdom of God. He's saying that he can forgive sin. He's saying that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And we've seen him exercise demons. And we've seen him heal lots of people. And Mark is sharing these stories, and he's sharing people's reaction to them, their position towards them. And we see that some people are receiving Jesus. Their lives are changing. We see demons that are recognizing who Jesus is, saying, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Some people still don't know what to think, but one thing for sure, they can't really ignore him anymore. They can't keep away from him. They're following him in droves. And others are outright rejecting him. They're opposing him. They're challenging him. And last week, we saw an escalation point. So Jesus said that he was Lord of the Sabbath, which is a, it's, it's claiming divine authority. And then he heals someone on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees start plotting to destroy him. In Mark chapter 1, it says that his fame is spreading throughout Galilee. And in this section, we see that his fame is spreading much farther than just Galilee. It's, farthing, it's, it's spreading up north. It's spreading south to the east and to the west like a wildfire. 
And people are traveling for days and for weeks to see him. It's this frenetic, kind of wild, dangerous activity that's going on. The crowd uh, is following Jesus all around. They're like on the verge of a mob. And there's this tension in the air. Mark is writing this so that we feel the tension in the air, the pressure building up like a match about to be thrown onto gasoline. And people are having to pick sides. They can't ignore Jesus anymore. He's not just a passing fad. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a movement, and he's not going away. And he's saying these things, and he's doing these things, and they're starting to demand a verdict. What do you think about Jesus? He's claiming divinity, and he's doing things with this unexplainable power. This man, he's not just a good teacher. He's not even claiming to be a teacher, not in the normal sense. In chapter one, it says he's bringing a new teaching with authority. He's not like me up here, you know, teaching about things that I've learned. He's the, he is the initiator of learning. He is the initiator of knowledge. He teaches with authority that no one else can. And these people have to, have to make a decision. And they're starting, they're starting to contend with those, those rumors um, of the people that there were there in chapter one at the baptism of Jesus when the sky opened up and a voice from heaven came saying, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And they're hearing people who saw that and they're saying, what? And they're having to contend, is Jesus the son of God? Is Jesus the son of God, really? Or is he crazy? Or is he evil? But one thing that's certain, he's not just a good guy with a good message. That's clear to everyone now. So C.S. Lewis has this thing called the trilemma. And you've heard of it. It's in the Chronicles of Narnia, actually, which is a little kid's story, if you don't know, where, where all these kids go into this magical land of Narnia through this wardrobe. And Lucy, she's the first one there and, um, and back from Narnia, and she comes back to tell her brothers and her sisters, and, and they won't believe that, that this place called Narnia exists. If you remember, she went into the wardrobe, and she kind of went through the jackets and popped out into this land where there was snow and trees, and she found Tumnus and had tea with Mr. Tumnus and then came back through the wardrobe, back through the jackets, and was worried that her brothers and sisters were going to be like, where is Lucy? And she popped out, and you know, it had only been a second in the real life, and her brothers and sisters were like, what, what are you talking about? They didn't believe her, and it breaks her heart. And the professor who they're staying with steps in, and he says, well, you know what? There are only three possibilities here. Either your sister is telling lies, or she's mad, or she's telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it's obvious that she's not mad. So for the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she's telling the truth. The trilemma. She's either lying, or she's crazy, or she's telling the truth. He says this, C.S. Lewis says this again in Mere Christianity. He says, he writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say, he writes. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who is saying he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or he's something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as demon, 
Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that option open to us. He didn't intend to. And we have the same three options here in the book of Mark. Jesus' family say he's crazy. The scribes say he's evil. The disciples, though, they're kind of taking the position that uh, the professor told the, the children in the Chronicles of Narnia to take. You know, they, they didn't know what to make of it yet, but they knew that Jesus doesn't lie, and they knew that he wasn't crazy. So even though they didn't completely understand, and it's going to take them this whole book to even get to understand what Jesus is doing here, they're going to take Jesus at his word. He's the son of God. And in chapter 8, we really see that play itself out. So you see, the dress is either black and blue or it's white and gold, and there's no in between. So here's the plan. We're going to walk through scene one, which is the great crowd. Scene two is the naming of the apostles. Scene three is where we, we see Jesus' family calling him crazy. And then scene four is when the scribes say he's evil. And here's the question that I, I see woven throughout all of these seemingly disparate stories. Um, they're all asking us, who do you think Jesus is? So, Scene one, if you're not there, Mark three is where we're at. Mark three, verse seven. So our story starts, like I mentioned, coming off of the Pharisees saying that they were gonna destroy Jesus. And destroy is a strong word. It's a violent word. And the scene that unfolds after that, that's our scene, while not necessarily violent yet, it's dangerous. Um, and we can't miss that as we walk through the story. Jesus' fame is spreading. People are coming from all over the place. Galilee, uh, Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edomea, which is down in the south, beyond the Jordan, talking about the east, Tyre and Sidon, which is north, about 120 miles. So this is basically another way of saying people are coming from all around, near and far. And these are all different kinds of people, people that are from Jewish regions and Gentile regions. All right? And... Tyre and Sidon, like I said, they were more than 120 miles away. So that's not too far for us in, in these days, but back then, this was a stretch. So someone who's trained, who can walk, you know, you know, who's in shape, not like me, but like really in shape, can walk about 20 miles a day, all right? So this is a six-day journey, one way, and another six days back. This is a 12-day journey uh, to go and see Jesus. I mean, 12 days is about, uh, you know, what some of us get for PTO each year. This is their family vacation. Only a phenomenon is going to drive these people to make this trek. It's like us going to, driving to California or flying to Australia. In fact, that's even easier than what these people are doing. And they're sick, and they're coming to be healed. And, and so this wasn't just a quick road trip. It was a hard journey. It was an exhausting journey. You have these sick people, they're traveling for weeks, and they get there, and they track down Jesus. And they see that there's thousands of people doing the exact same thing, and they can't get up front. They can't get up front to see the guy that they just traveled six days to see. They've come all this way, they've got to meet him. Some people want to meet him for sure, kind of for the hype. You know, they want to meet the guy, the miracle worker, get a, you know, a little selfie of him and post it on Facebook, and maybe print it out and frame it and hang it on your office wall and kind of point at it. I met, I met the guy, shook his hand. So there are people like that that are there kind of for the spectacle. But others, I don't think that it's Jesus' fame that's driving them. 
It's desperation. I mean, imagine, imagine what these people, who they might have been. You know, their daughter is sick and dying, and the doctors say it's just a matter of time. Or the mason who can't pick up a hammer anymore because of arthritis, and so he can't feed his family. You know, his career's over. He's got to scratch together as much money as he get, can get to try, to try to make the trip. Or it's the husband who's a, maybe a new father who's got a five-year-old and his wife's sick. She's coughing up blood. The doctors don't know what's going on. It's just getting worse and worse. She walks around with a little handkerchief and wipes the blood off her chin, you know, real quick so that their five-year-old doesn't see what's really going on. But it's getting kind of hard to hide These are desperate people, and they've got to see Jesus. They must see him. And they're going to push and shove and scratch and claw their way to the front of that crowd, no matter what it takes. You know the scene. Just hold my hand, love. Don't let go. I'll get you to the front. I've got to get you to the front. And they dive into the crowd. So when we read in verse 9 that Jesus needed a boat, this was crowd control. Okay, these scenes that are unfolding, these are dangerous scenes. These are crowd surges scenes. People are, you know, tramples and uh, being trampled and stampede sort of scenes is kind of what we have to get in our mind. These people aren't standing around in a nice little line waiting to see Jesus. All right, the boat was the solution. Maybe there were other solutions, but that, you know, Jesus and the disciples said, this isn't gonna work. It's getting out of hand. So he gets on a boat. All right, I see two crowds in this whole section. The, the first crowd, this crowd, is a rancorous crowd. Uh, with clamor and tumult. And the second crowd that we're going to get to in, in, the, in the third scene is, is a different crowd. This is the crowd that Jesus says, uh, who is my family? Who is my mother and who are my brothers? That's the second crowd. This is a different crowd. But this first crowd, I don't think that we should give them the wrong read. Uh, we, we shouldn't play them down too much, um, their intentions. What they're doing is not all that bad. When you hurt and when you need healing, you should go to Jesus. That's exactly what you should do. You should fight to get to Jesus. That's what Jesus wants you to do. He heals these people and he doesn't heal them reluctantly. Remember the story of the paralytic who was so brazen that he and his friends broke a hole into the, the roof and comes down. He wanted to walk badly. He needed to walk. And Jesus looked into the man's eyes and he looked into his soul. He looked into his heart. The man wanted to walk, but there was more deeper healing that Jesus saw he needed. He needed his sins forgiven. And that's what Jesus did. He made him, he made him walk, but he forgave his sins first. So who's this Jesus? He's one that can heal. But more importantly, he's the one that can forgive sins. And so when we read that Jesus was in this boat over this monstrous crowd, don't picture him reluctant, reluctantly healing these people, that he's annoyed with them, that his ministry is threatened by them. He looks into the, man, the eyes of the man carrying his daughter, and he looks into his heart, and he looks into his soul, and he sees a deeper need. He sees the mason you know, that can't support his family anymore. And he looks into his heart and he looks into his soul. He sees the financial stress and burden and guilt and shame, but he sees the deeper need. He looks into that, the eyes of the husband and the wife as they crawl their way to the front, you know, husband with a, his arm over the shoulder of the frail wife. And he looks into their eyes and he sees that they're scared, but he sees the deeper need. 
in their souls, in their hearts. He sees the chains of sin and death and evil, and that's what he's come to destroy. He's just as desperate to heal these people as they are to be healed. But he sees the sickness that we miss, the darker sickness, a more deadly sickness, an eternal sickness, and that's what he's come to destroy. So whatever reason brings you in here this morning, whatever plagues you, you know, whether it's emotional, financial, physical, go to Jesus, fall down at his feet. But know this, Jesus isn't gonna stop there. He sees into your heart and your soul, and he sees the deeper need. He sees what you ultimately need, what we all ultimately need, which is Jesus himself. That's why in chapter one, after Jesus started his healing ministry, um, he goes off to pray. People were looking for him, and Peter says, people are looking for you, Jesus, let's go back. And he says, no, we gotta keep going. I gotta preach the gospel to more places here in Galilee. His healing ministry undergirded his preaching ministry. And the gospel of the cross is what brings eternal healing. Oh, the wonderful cross we just sang. Jesus looks out onto the crowd, and among them he starts calling people out of the crowd. For whatever reason they came to see him, they're on the outside, and he's calling them on the inside. He's forming a new community. Do you want to be on the inside? Do you want to be part of that new community? This brings us to our next scene. This is starting in verse 13. The naming of the apostles. So the weight of names, I think, is kind of lost on us here in the United States. Uh, but it's not like that in other parts of the world. Names hold a, a, are important. They're an important place in society. They matter. Listen to this. So in Morocco, when you're born... It's by law that you have to take your father's last name. And when you're born, your father gets a book, and he writes your name in that book. That's your family book. Say you want to go uh, get your driver's license. You need a family book. Say you want to go get a birth certificate. Let's see your family book. If you don't have a family book, you're in a world of hurt. The administrative mess that you're going to have to walk through your entire life to get anything done is just going to burden you, weigh you down driver's license, kindergarten, you know, whatever you're doing, you need that family book. Mothers don't get family books, only fathers. And listen to this caveat, and this is an important one. This is a damning one. Your name is only allowed to be in your father's family book if your mother and father are married. So you see where I'm going with this. If you're born out of wedlock in Morocco, it's a condemnation. You don't get your father's last name, and you don't get your family book. All right, on the book birth certificate, right up there at top, it says illegitimate. At the top of your, uh, your school records, illegitimate. They have a name for people like this. Everybody uses it. Child of sin. So-and-so. Child of sin. And it follows you all over the place. In Morocco, names matter. And in Israel, names matter too. Names were your destiny. They were your past and they were your purpose. They weren't just an identifying word meant to separate you know, one person from another person. They were your whole identity. They were powerful. They empowered. So when we read in Mark 3, 13, that Jesus called people up into a new community, took them up into the mountain, 
those that he desired. And they came to him in the appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. That verb named is significant. It's meant something a lot more than I think we realize living here in the U.S. Jesus was giving them a new destiny, a new past, a new purpose. He was inviting them into the new kingdom. Twelve apostles, just like the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the new community of God, and he's naming them to be a part of it. But it's more than just that. He's, he's recreating them. Remember back in Genesis, um, when God created the world, when he created things, do you remember how he did it? He spoke it into being, and then he named it. All right? Light is day, and darkness, night. Names matter. And in John 10, 2 through 4, it says that, um, talking about, so this is Jesus saying that whoever enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens up the door and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out and they hear his voice, they know his voice. So have you heard his voice calling you up from the crowd, up to the mountain? Do you know his voice? Have you heard him calling your name? Because if you have, then we have a new identity. We have a new community. We have a new source of meaning. Let me say it this way. And also, let me, let me say this. Um, as I was uh, preparing to, for the sermon, I listened to Tim Keller. Uh, he preached on these verses, and he gives it a much more thorough handling than I'm about to get, about to give. And clearly, he's Tim Keller, so um, he's, he does it a lot better than I'm about to. Uh, but if any of this resonates with you, let me know, and I can uh, email you or, or ping you um, the link to that sermon, because it's a great sermon. So let me say it this way. While in the United States, names might not mean a lot, brands do. Personal brands mean a lot. On the bookshelf of Barnes & Noble, or I guess in people's shopping cart on Amazon, books are filled with how-tos on personal brand, how to better your personal brand, tell us how to be thoughtful in shaping it. Companies spend millions and millions of dollars just on a name. We're no longer Facebook, we're Meta. Artists and actors change their names completely to better capture audiences' attention. Bruno Mars, does anybody know what Bruno Mars's real name is? Peter Jean Hernandez. Nah. So Bruno, apparently because he was chubby when he was a kid, and so his dad knew this wrestler whose name was Bruno, so he called him Bruno because he was chubby like the wrestler who's also chubby. Mars, get this, so, so Bruno Mars says, Mars is because all of the ladies think he's out of this world. I know. Jamie Foxx, his real name, Eric Marlin Bishop. He changed his name because when he was starting the comedian uh, circuit, the stand-up circuit, he realized that, that girls almost always got chosen to go up because there were so few girls that would get chosen. So he changed his name to something that sounded kind of feminine. And uh, maybe, you know, trick people into calling him up, thinking that he was a girl. And the best, John Wayne. His real name, Marion Robert Morrison. So I, I think we see why a name like Marion wouldn't really cut it for uh, John Wayne, you know. So names shape our identity, but other things do too, like wealth. Wealth shapes our identity, having it and not having it, both alike. But not in a good way, not in a satisfying, uh, purposeful, eternal sort of way. 
Not in the way that Jesus does when he calls people up out of the crowd to be part of this new community. Tim Keller, so um, I got this from him. He used uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus to talk about this. You guys know this story? It's in Luke 16. There's a rich man. He's got nice clothes. He's got a big table with a nice spread, a big house. He's rich. And you have Lazarus, who's got sores all over him. He's poor, broke, he sleeps out on the street, the dogs licking his wounds and his sores. He, he would die just to get the crumbs from the table of the rich man, you know, rummaging, rummaging through his trash can. He's the kind of guy whose identity we don't even see. He, we, we don't see him as we pass him on the road, you know? And if we do see him, we kind of avoid him. Don't go near that guy. Well, they both die. And Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man goes to hell. And here's the point that Tim Keller makes. In the story, the rich man never has a name. His identity was his wealth. You take wealth away, and he's left with nothing. He dies, and he's buried, and no one knows his name. He's just another rich guy. Could have been anyone, but not Lazarus. He was named, and he's standing next to Abraham. You see, names matter in this life. Identity matters in this life. And Jesus is offering these, these 12 guys, these apostles, he was calling them into a new community, into the new kingdom. They came from such different walks of life. They were rich and they were poor and they all had different, different distinct identities before they met Jesus. But now they have different identities. Names that aren't gonna fade with the passing of time. Names that matter in the next life. So where do we find our, our identity? Is it, is it on our business card? Or these days, like our LinkedIn profile? Is that, is that our identity? No, we can't find our identity there. There's no eternal purpose or meaning in that. Maybe it's uh, something a little bit more like uh, people in Morocco, where identity is found on the top of our birth certificate. Illegitimate. Nope, that's not our identity. Whatever name the world places on us, whatever they call us, that is not our identity. Not once you've been called, not once you've been called up to the crowd, up onto the mountain and renamed. Jesus is our identity and he calls us by name. In Revelations 2, it says, to the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on it. And on that stone, no one will know except the ones who receive it. Jesus has a name for us, and it's only ours. It's only mine. It's your name and no one else, no one else's. And we'll get to see that white stone, and we will be the people Jesus sees when he looks out over the crowd, and he looks through our eyes into our hearts, into our souls, and he says, you are mine. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about this scene, but I'll share one more point before I move on to the next, and I'm gonna make it quick and leave it. So verse 14 says that he appointed the 12 so that they could be with him. So the crowd, the crowd wanted to be near Jesus for what Jesus could do for them. These guys, they wanted to be near Jesus because they wanted to be near Jesus. They wanted him. They wanted his calling. They wanted their lives to be built around his plan they wanted to preach his gospel. They wanted to do his work. Who is Jesus? 
He's not a means to the end. Jesus Christ is the end itself. So scene three, Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. So this one is a little different. We've got the first two verses, 20 and 21, and then it picks it back up in 31 through 35. So like I mentioned when I started, the way that Mark um, lays out uh, his, this, this story, it's not in a cr- chronological order. Um, he does this thing uh, called um, um, intercalation. I had to look down and I, who can remember that word? Um, intercalation. Uh, another term for it is the sandwich technique. Um, he takes one story, and then right in the middle of that story, he inserts another story, seemingly disparate stories. And he does this to draw out uh, like a new theme combining both of the stories. And, and this new theme is, is showing that both Jesus' family and the scribes didn't see Jesus for who he really was. So this story starts at his home. Uh, it says, we don't know for sure, but it could have been Peter and Andrew's house. Uh, if you guys remember when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, it was in Capernaum. And then later in chapter 2, after he went preaching uh, around Galilee, it says he went back to his home in Capernaum. Um, And then here it says that Jesus went home, and he was trying to eat, and his family shows up. But right there in the middle of the story, Mark inserts another story about the scribes coming from Jerusalem. Well, let's take that that story, and let's put it over to the next scene. Um, I'll talk about that here in a minute. So this story again, there's a crowd. So when I was trying to write down what I'm going to say, this, this was the part that I struggled with most. What am I going to say? What is this saying? So I, I interpreted it this way. I asked myself three questions. So who is in this scene? Second is the setting. Where, where is everybody? And then third, what does everybody want? Based on who they think Jesus is, what are they presupposing on him? So who's here with Jesus? We have the crowd. But as I mentioned earlier, I think that there are two different crowds. The first one is described in verse 20. It says, the crowd gathered again. I think it's safe that this was the same crowd that we talked about in scene one, the great crowd, the clamorous crowd, the crowd that came to Jesus because of the miracles he had been doing. Because it says the crowd gathered again. Then you have Jesus' family. Now, this is the, the, the first time that we get the word family. This is in verse, verse 21. Um, it's a word that usually does mean family, but it could also mean friends or relatives or those of him. But the second time, um, it makes it clear. It doesn't say family. It says his mother and his brothers. So I take this as meaning that in both of these situations, it's talk, talking about the same group of people, and this group of people included Jesus' mother and his brothers. So one thing to draw out of this is that whoever this uh, is that um, whoever this is, they were people that were close to Jesus. It's a reminder to us that proximity to Jesus is different than true, life-altering, saving faith and belief in who Jesus is. Listen, here's a, here's a takeaway. Quick little takeaway. Not all of us grew up in church and the family of God, but many of us have. And we've been going to church every Sunday our entire lives because from the time we were born until now, our families have been talking about Jesus, um, reading the Bible. We know all of the songs. Maybe even we go to Christian schools. We hang out with people that are in the church. We, you know, go to a Christian university. We are born into proximity with Jesus. 
But here's the thing to think about in this, in this verse. Proximity to Jesus is not the same thing as saving faith. Cultural Christianity is not the same thing as saving faith. We can have spent our entire lives in the pews of church buildings and never really know Jesus. Being here on Sunday morning is proximity to Jesus, but it's not a relationship to Jesus. All right. The group in, uh, in, in Mark 3, um, they knew Jesus. So the crowd that, was, uh, that, was, that it associates as family, they knew Jesus. So, so much so that people around them associated with Jesus. It's a close association. And they totally misread who Jesus is. So if we are trying to live it our, out our lives in this in-between place, where even if we don't say it out loud, we kind of, we kind of believe C.S. Lewis, uh, what C.S. Lewis warned us about in Mere Christianity, We've positioned in our minds to say, I believe that Jesus is a great human teacher with really useful insights of how to live acceptable lives, but, I mean, he's, he's not really the son of God. That is dangerous. In Matthew 7, it says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, a lot like that third crowd that we're going to read, uh, second crowd that we're going to read about here, that Jesus calls his family. But the one that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Wasn't I in church every single Sunday? And he's gonna say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Proximity to Jesus is not the same thing as a relationship with Jesus. So back to our scene. Okay, back to what's going on here. We have the second crowd, and it's different than the first. And, it's, and this is why I think it's not described as the crowd, but a crowd. And these people were sitting around Jesus. This is also the crowd that Jesus is going to say, here are my mother and my brothers. So those are the three groups of people. Where is everyone? Well, the second crowd is clearly inside with Jesus. They're at his feet. And Jesus' family is outside perhaps with the great crowd from earlier. So you have some that are inside with Jesus, in the community of Jesus. And then you have others that are on the outside, not in the community of Jesus. But what does everybody want? What's the answer to that question? Why does this matter? I think Jesus' family wants one of two things. In both of these situations, it's because um, they think that Jesus lost his mind. Uh, he's gone out of his mind. He's psychologically deranged. Uh, in a sense, he's gone crazy. And we could see how this would kind of make sense. Jesus had a mob following him, a dangerous mob following him. And here in this, sin, this scene, he, he can't even eat. There's so many people around. And the authorities, they're trying, to, they're trying to destroy him. He's got this ecstatic sort of drive about him. He's on this mission. Some might think it's a quixotic mission. He's making crazy claims of a divine nature. So from a human perspective, things are getting a little out of hand. From a human, human perspective, someone needs to calm Jesus down. But that's from a human perspective. Like we've been saying, if you don't believe that he's the son of God, you really only have two options. He's either evil or crazy. And his family thinks he's crazy. This aligns with John 7, where it says that not even his brothers believed him. And his family is calling him crazy and they want to seize him. That word seize, it means to bind him, to stop him. But why? 
So here are the two reasons. One, the softer interpretation, is I think that they genuinely fear for him. You know, he's not able to eat. People are on the lookout trying to kill him. They want to keep him safe. They want to bring him home, kind of protect him from himself. Then there's the harsher interpretation, which has to do with this honor and shame culture in which the Jews lived. It wasn't Jesus's, or just Jesus's reputation that was on the line here. The whole family's reputation is on the line. They were trying to protect their honor, not Jesus. Jesus's. They didn't want family disgrace. So I don't think that we can say which of these reasons it is. We can't know their hearts. But in either case, the family is presuming it has rights that Jesus is obliged to honor, that they can exert power and influence over Jesus, that their wills supersede the will of Jesus, and that they need to take care of him, take him home so that he can eat and cool off because he's crazy. He's not the son of God. And this is kind of a startling thing to read. I mean, we're talking about Mary. We're talking about the same Mary that sang that song of praise in Luke 1. You know, it's startling when we think that we could be talking about James, the pillar of the Jerusalem church that would come, or Judas, Jesus' brother Judas, who possibly wrote the book of Jude. So it's startling. These people might have been outside, and, and Jesus says these things about them. But this is full of grace. And I'll come back to this later at the end of this message. And I also want to say one thing. I think that this is important to make. So Mark's writing style is abrupt. It's to the point. Uh, and it might give you the impression that Jesus didn't really care about his earthly family, that he was kind of a bit harsh with him. So let me say that that's not the case. Jesus in the whole Bible is very family-oriented. Family is important throughout the whole Bible, the whole storyline. And we know that Jesus is gentle and lowly and tender, and he loved Mary tenderly, just like he loves us tenderly. And he cared for her until the very end. But think about it this way. He looked into Mary's eyes and saw her soul, saw her heart, and, and he, he loved her physically as a mom. But he loves her deeper than that, and he saw the need that she had, just like we all have. She needs to be part of this new community as well, this new family. You're not born into it. You're called into it. You get into it through the redemption, through the death of Jesus on the cross, through blood, through sacrifice. And that's what Jesus was gonna do. And even on the cross, even on the cross, where is this? In John 19, he's hanging on the cross, crown on his head, blood dripping down his eyes, and he looks at Mary. And he looks at John, the apostle, and he says, woman, behold your son. And he looks at John and he says, behold your mother. On the cross, he was saving Mary's soul, but he was still caring for her physical well-being up until the very end. Jesus loved his mom. So don't let Mark's writing style make you think differently. So uh, lastly, what does this smaller crowd want with Jesus? So we talked about what, what the family wanted with Jesus. Well, what about this smaller crowd? What do you think uh, they wanted with Jesus and who do they think Jesus was? Well, verse 35 tells us they wanted to do the will of God. They wanted to be near Jesus. They wanted to be called to do his work, called into his life and into his saving grace. They wanted it more than they wanted anything. And they were learning that this man that they loved was truly the son of God. And he wasn't crazy at all. His mission wasn't some quixotic idealism. It was true. It was the true playing out of the purpose and meeting of all of our lives. These people, this is Jesus' true family. This is the new 12 tribes of Israel.
This is the church. This is us. These people at Jesus' feet here in this story, they're the sons and daughters of the Most High God. They are the co-heirs. They're those inside the house with Jesus at his feet. It's said that blood is thicker than water, but it's not thicker than fire. John the Baptist said, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. I baptize baptize you with water, but someone's coming after me, mightier than me, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Blood might be thicker than water, but it's not thicker than fire. This brings us to scene four, starting in verse 22. The scribes say he's evil. So here we have the meat of the, you know, Mark's sandwich. So he, he uses this, this, um, this writing style uh, to really drive home the point of people's misjudgment about who Jesus really is. And so he's tying this theme to that of his family. So this is the meat um, of, of this sandwich, or the peanut butter and jelly, if that's your preference like me. So we have these legal specialists from Jerusalem, and they're coming down to Capernaum. This suggests that Jesus has captured the the attention of the Sanhedrin. So even they couldn't ignore Jesus anymore. They had to wrestle with the same trilemma that everybody is wrestling with. Is Jesus the son of God or is he crazy or is he evil? And they think that he's evil. I hope this doesn't go unnoticed by any of you. They weren't denying what Jesus was doing, like his works, his miracles. They weren't saying that this was somehow staged, that he was some kind of a fraud, a trickster. That's not their argument. They're questioning the source of his power, whether it was good or whether it was evil. And they they lob these two accusations at Jesus to explain this awesome power that he's exhibiting. So what they say is, first, is it's by Beelzebul that you cast out demons. Well, this is a weird word. Maybe it's like Beelzebub. I won't go into all of it. I've read like too much on it. It, it, So Baal, the prince or demon prince, or it it was just an obscure word. But then they followed it up with, um, uh, it's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. So those are the two things. He's possessed by Beelzebul and you're in cohorts with with, uh, Satan. And Jesus is gonna respond with two arguments and then he's gonna finish with a dire warning. So the first argument And so Jesus doesn't mess around with Beelzebul or all that stuff. He says, you guys are talking about Satan. So he says, if Satan's powers were divided, then he couldn't stand. So this doesn't make sense that that you say that I'm in in, league with Satan casting out his demons. And he he moves this into the second second answer about the strong man. He says, and if if you say that, that that I am, if I'm casting out demons, I will have had to bound up Satan because Satan is the chief of the demons. He's a champion of the demons. He's, he's the Lord of the demons. So your argument here is just full of fallacies. And he doesn't really, I mean, I guess he does go into it. But what he goes is he moves directly into this dire warning. Okay, so this is the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And here's what I'm going to do. 
I want to read a quote. It's kind of an extended quote from this book, The Wonderful Works of God by Herman Bavink. He explains this well, better than I could if I tried to, tried to paraphrase it for you. So he's talking about this verse and also the same similar verses are found in Matthew 12 and then also in Luke 12, I think. Um, he writes this. So this is um, Bavink talking about this unforgivable sin. It does not consist of doubt or unbelief concerning the truth which God has revealed, nor of a resistance to and a grieving of the Holy Spirit. For these are sins which can be committed also by believers, and indeed, often are. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can take place only when there has been in the consciousness such a rich revelation of God and such a powerful illumination of the Holy Spirit that man is fully convinced in his heart and conscience of the truth of the divine revelation. This sin consists of this, rather, that such a person, regardless of all objective revelation and subjective enlightenment, despite the fact that he has known and tasted of truth as truth, nevertheless, in full awareness and with deliberate intent, call that truth a lie, and castigates Christ as a tool of Satan. It's the culmination. In its culmination, sins become, sin becomes so godless, godlessly brazen, that it shakes off every vestige of shame, throws off all covering, and stands stark naked, despises all apparent reason, and, out of sure, sheer delight in evil, takes its stand against God's truth and grace. We must not forget the comfort which is contained in this teaching. For if this sin is the one unforgivable sin, then all others, all other sins, even the greatest, most severe, can be forgiven. So listen, if you're worried that you've committed this unforgivable sin, you almost certainly have not. Your worry proves it. So let me close with this as the worship team makes its way back up. This warning is full of grace. And the story of Jesus' earthly family being on the wrong leg of the trilemma, so to say, is full of grace. Mary and Jesus' brothers came to know Jesus for who he was. His earthly family was pulled in to this eternal family. And Paul the chief among sinners who stood in approval at Stephen's stoning, who directly set himself up as an opponent to anyone who professed Jesus Christ as Lord. He became a pillar of the church. Brothers and sisters, friends, the lordship of our Savior runs so deep and his cleansing power so thorough and his love and tenderness is so unshakable. He came to call sinners and that's what he did. And that's what he still does today. So are you still a part of the crowd on the outside looking in? Friend, hear Jesus' voice. Hear him call your name. Come inside. Come into the family. Fit, sit at his seat. We're a family of sinners. But we put our trust in Jesus. We don't understand it all, but we understand enough. We take Jesus at his word. Jesus is not crazy. Jesus is not evil. 
Jesus is the Son of God. Let's build our life upon him. Let's build our life on his love. It's a firm foundation. Will you stand with me as I pray and then we sing? Father God, we believe in you and we believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we believe in the Holy Spirit and we believe in your church. Amen.